Hello everyone, this is Pastor Damien. You're listening to Sermon Audio from New City, Orlando. At New City, we believe all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. For more resources, visit our website at newcityorlando.com. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. Let your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And please remain standing for this morning's scripture reading. It's one verse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone can do it this week. It's common for us to say, please remain standing if you're able, because scripture readings normally last about three minutes. But today, uh, I'll make it last longer than three seconds, but not much more than that. So remain standing for God's word. This is from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 4. Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Shorter verse means longer sermon. Buckle up. <laughs> what, do, what do nerds do on vacation? Well, they read history books. And so recently on a vacation, I found myself reading a book by the renowned historian Will Durant. Now, Will and his wife, uh, both historians, wrote an epic 11-volume history of humanity called The Story of Civilization. And they summarized it into a 130-page book that I read called The Lessons of History. And towards the end of that book, as they were kind of reflecting on all that they learned through a lifetime of studying the arc of human history, uh, Will Durant says this, The greatest question of our time is, pause for a moment, how would you finish that? The greatest question of our time is, showing a little bit his his day and age, this is what he says, the question of our time is not communism versus individualism, not Europe versus America, not even the East versus the West. Will Durant says, the greatest question of our time is, whether men can bear to live without God. See, he was reflecting on the fact that we find ourselves in a historical anomaly, which is called secular materialism. It's the dominant philosophy of our day. Essentially, nothing supernatural, there's no such thing as a a transcendent dimension to life, which means that there is no God, there is no soul, there is nothing spiritual in existence. That's the dominant philosophy of our day, and it's a first in human history. This is the first time that that transcendent faith has been replaced by imminent doubt, skepticism, and cynicism. This is the world in which we live. Like many people really assume that that God is kind of like on an island, and, and as science and technology kind of advances, the water's just rising up on the island, and it's gonna get to the point where there's no room for God left anymore. It's a picture of the day we live in. One pastor put it like this, secular culture is performing a reverse exorcism, saying to Jesus, come out in our name. Stripping our culture of any vestige of its Christian roots. It's a a reverse exorcism of sorts. And so, as a result, in the practical stuff of everyday life, many of us live as functional atheists. We live as functional atheists. 
In the mid-1900s, the great apologist, evangelist, Francis Schaeffer, turned to his wife and he said, Edith, you know, I wonder what would happen to most churches if tomorrow we woke up and everything in the Bible about the work of the Holy Spirit and prayer was just deleted. It was just gone. What would happen to most churches? They reflected on that and they, they came to the conclusion, not very much. Not much would change if we woke up tomorrow and everything in the Bible about prayer and the Holy Spirit was just gone, never, never ever there. And he wasn't wrong. In 2005, Barna Group did a research study and they looked at pastoral priorities of churches in America. What are the pastors in American churches prioritizing? Prayer was number 12. And you might think, you know, pastors do a lot of things. 12 out of 12. It was the last on the list of priorities, after good things like evangelism and outreach and preaching and teaching and soul care and good things, prayer was 12 out of 12 on that list. Francis Schaeffer was prophetic. He didn't even know it. And so, what do we do? What do we do? Well, I want to submit to you that we recover what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called insistent realism. Insistent realism. As, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great uh, pastor and prophet and spy, was in a, a prison about to be executed by Hitler for standing up for the Jewish people in Nazi Germany. While he was in prison, his last letter that he wrote, he wrote to his father and he coined this phrase, insistent realism. He said, this phrase summarizes everything that my life and writing has been about. Insistent realism. What does that even mean? He said, basically, it's that talk is cheap. If your Christianity doesn't show up in lived reality, it is not Christianity. For Bonhoeffer, Christianity could never be merely an intellectual theory. It always had to be discipleship to Christ in every situation of concrete, everyday life, both personal and public. This is insistent realism. Insistent realism is that Our lives are a lived demonstration to the reality of the true and living God. That's insistent realism. Let me give you some examples in in church history. Hudson Taylor, who had an undying love for the nation of China, made 10 voyages from England to China. It's been calculated he spent probably between five and six years on a boat. What would drive a man to do something like that? Well, in his own words, he said his life and his life's work were founded upon three facts. First, there is a living God. Second, he has spoken in the Bible. Third, he means what he says and he will do what he's promised. This is insistent realism. Insistent realism looks like George Mueller of Bristol who fed 10,000 orphans through prayer alone. That's insistent realism. Insistent realism is how the early church in the book of Acts said, they they said in Acts 17 that the church turned the world upside down. The apostles described it, they said, we could not help but speak of all that we were seeing and hearing. So much so that Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 expects that when outsiders, not yet disciples of Jesus, come and be with us in a space like this, they will have to say, God is really among you. This is insistent realism. And so brothers and sisters, are we a living, breathing demonstration of the reality of God in our day? Or not? 
our cultural moment is insistent in its unrealism, in its disinfectant tendencies to, to take God out of all things. And so we struggle with spiritual reality. We all do. And so let's settle this question right now. Once and for all, is God living and active in the real stuff of life or not? If so, let's pray. If so, let's pray. And if we are going to pray, if we're going to live out of this insistent realism, we have to learn the story of prayer. And that's what we're going to see in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. This simple verse has a whole story packed into it. Aristotle said that a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You're like, I thought he was supposed to be profound. He was. The story of prayer is continue steadfastly in prayer. That's the beginning. Be watchful in it. That's the middle. With thanksgiving. That's the end. Let's look at this together under those three points. The word translated devote yourselves or continue steadfastly depending on which translation you're reading, it occurs about 10 times in the New Testament. And six of those are in the book of Acts. Because if you read the book of Acts, uh, describing the life of the early disciples of Jesus, right out of the gate, the early church is devoting itself to prayer. Acts 1, verse 14, it says, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. That's the word, devoting themselves. That's what we're going to do tonight. Come on out, seek night, 6 p.m., with one accord, devoting ourselves to prayer like the church has always done. You go a, a page later, Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Maybe another page in your Bible, Acts 6.4. Uh, this should be good for Barna's research on pastoral priorities. The apostle says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Those are the pastoral priorities according to scripture. And so my question is, would an outsider observer uh, looking at your life for the last week, your personal life, your family life, our church life, would they say, man, these people are devoted to prayer? The word devoted could also be translated to act stubbornly. It's a refusal to be denied. So if you could be stubbornly committed to something, anything, one thing, what would it be? The early church was tenaciously, perseveringly, stubbornly, unflinchingly devoted to prayer. That's what we see in the picture of Acts. But when we pray, we end up giving up pretty quickly. We try to turn it on and then we just end up shutting down. We get distracted so we cease and desist. Like what, what's going on? And, and let me just tell you, I'm with you. <laughs> like, I don't think Paul expects it to be easy. Paul knows that this is true. That's why he had to command us to continue steadfastly in prayer. He knows it's really easy to give up. You don't have to command people to do things that are easy and natural. Devote yourselves to sugar and Netflix, right? Like, it's just not, not a thing. The Apostle Paul knows that this is going to be hard. And so how do we learn to devote ourselves to continue steadfastly in prayer? Well, I want to ask two questions that are going to feel, they're going to come across stern. I don't mean it that way, but I think they cut to, like a scalpel to the heart of our prayerlessness. Here's the two questions. Who do you think you're talking to? And who do you think you are? 
If you can ask and answer these two questions of your prayer life, I think you've got a, it will open up to a vista of possibilities. Who do you think you're talking to and who do you think you are? I want to look at those together. First, who do you think you're talking to? Abraham Joshua Heschel, who marched with MLK arm in arm in the March on Selma, said it like this. The issue of prayer is not prayer. The issue of prayer is God. To devote yourselves to prayer, don't focus on prayer. Ask yourself the question, who do I think I'm talking to right now? My dad, I grew up in a firefighter's home. My dad was a firefighter. And there's this thing called the fire triangle, which means uh, if fire is going to be ignited, it needs three things. It has to have fuel to burn. It has to have oxygen to burn. And it has to have heat to burn. That's what fire needs, the fire triangle, okay? So, so really, culturally speaking, if, if your faith is a flame, secularism like a vacuum has sucked all of the oxygen out of our cultural moment so that that flame is nearly extinguished. But in firefighting, there's this thing that happens called a backdraft. It's actually really dangerous. It's when a fire has been raging, burning, and it's burned up most of its oxygen source, and it begins to dwindle down a little bit, only to have the introduction of air, of oxygen flowing in, and it blows up almost with fire. This is the language of, of an article that I read about it. When air comes in, Rapid ignition can occur with devastating force. That's a good description of a praying church. Rapid ignition with devastating force for the kingdom of God. And so what I'm saying is we have to reoxygenize our souls so that the flame of faith can be rekindled. What I'm saying is knowledge of God is the oxygen of our faith. Knowledge of God is the oxygen of our faith, and prayer is like bellows fanning, fanning the flame into fire. Prayer is like soul breathing. We inhale deeply the atmosphere of God's presence when we're in prayer. But the question was, who do you think you're talking to? Because, listen, our knowledge of God is often toxic. It's filled with noxious fumes, we breathe deeply in prayer of this image of God that is not the God who is, but the God of our own making. So one person who I've learned about uh, prayer from a good bit, a guy named Corey Russell, puts it like this. We don't pray because nobody likes to talk to someone who's ugly, boring, and doesn't like you. Pretty direct. Another way to say that is we don't pray because we don't see God as beautiful, captivating, and truly, madly, deeply for us. Yes, that was a Savage Garden reference. You're welcome. <laughs> That's why the question, who do you think you're talking to, matters so much in our life of prayer. One rabbi put it like this, when you pray, know before whom you stand. Know before whom you stand. The people who know God best pray most. The people who know God best pray most because what they know is that God is great and gracious, that he is good and glorious. These people who know God best, they know that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of God's willingness. Let me put it like this. There's a story about Alexander the Great, and one of Alexander the Great's general's daughters was getting married. And so Alexander said to him, you know, I'd be happy to contribute to the wedding. Um, I, I know it's going to be expect, expensive. Just, just let me know what I can do. 
So the general wrote out a request for an enormous, ridiculous sum of money. And when Alexander's treasurer saw it, he brought it to Alexander and he said this, I'm sure you're going to be cutting this guy's head off for what he's done. He said the audacity of asking something like this. Here's his final words. Who does he think you are? To which Alexander said, give it to him. Give it to him. By such an outlandish request, he shows that he believes that I am both rich and generous. (laughs) He was flattered by it. Is our God less rich and generous than Alexander the Great? Is the living God... The kind of God who who's defined himself in scripture, who's made known himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Is that God less lit, rich and generous? Here's my invitation. Meditate on Psalm 145. Look at the picture portrayed of who God is. Read through the gospels. Jesus came to give us a trustworthy picture of God. Look at the kind of people that come to him constantly asking, beckoning him for things all the time. And look at how he asks and gives them far more abundantly than anything that they could ask or imagine. This is the God that we're talking to. So when I say, who do you think you're talking to? You have to conjure up this picture of who God is. The second question is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are when you are trying to be devoted to prayer? Many of us find ourselves worthy. We think that we're unworthy. We think that we're undeserving. We don't think we're sincere enough to pray. And listen, you're right. All of that is true. All of that is true about us. And yet we are welcomed. Even more, we are beckoned, commanded, implored to seek God's face in prayer. God knows this about us. He knows that our motives are mixed, our hearts are cold, our devotion is fickle. But our big brother Jesus has created a space for you and for me in the presence of our Father. John Stott says the best summary of prayer comes in Ephesians 2. It says, in Christ we have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access. Three-word summary of a Christian doctrine of prayer. We have access, not because we come on our own merit, but because we come in the name of Jesus. That's not a throwaway phrase when we say it at the end of our prayers. To come in the name of Jesus, it does mean that we come for his sake, but it also means more than that. It means because of Jesus' death and resurrection, he has made us one with him. We belong to Jesus. He has made you his own if you've trusted in him and so when we come to prayer we come clothed in Christ and so one of the things I do when I pray and I'm feeling these things when I ask the question who do I think I am and the answer is not good is I just pause for a moment and meditate on what it's like that I am in Jesus I belong to him I'm coming in the matchless name of King Jesus to my father's throne and it stirs up boldness before the throne of grace to ask for help in a time of need. So the two questions are, who do you think you're talking to? And who do you think you are? C.S. Lewis said that the prayer that precedes all prayers, your preface, kind of clearing your throat, is this, may it be the real I who speaks, and may it be the real you to whom I speak. And so we've just looked at the beginning. Devote yourselves to prayers, the beginning of the story. The middle is to be watchful in it 
to be watchful in it. To be watchful here is to be alert, to be aware. The opposite of this is to be oblivious or negligent. To be watchful is another way to say to be alive and aware in the fullest sense. Kevin Van Hooser says to make disciples, we have to wake disciples. We've got to wake up. Discipleship to Jesus is a continual waking up to the insistent reality that the living God is present and active in our lives. But just not just our personal lives, our political lives. Like yesterday, I was doing yard work. And I put on the little dwell app and I listened through giant chunks of the Bible while I'm doing yard work. And, and so I was listening through most of the book of Isaiah yesterday. And I was just struck by the fact that God is throwing shade on Assyrian political rulers. Like he's mixing and mingling in the socio-political issues of the day. When we read the Bible, it trains us to watch for God in current events. He is not a deistic God separated like a watchmaker twirling his world into order and then sending it off distant and detached. That's a heresy. He is the living God, active in our world. And so following Jesus requires a sense of expectancy. Expectancy, we devote ourselves to prayer and then we watch and we wait. We expect that the ordinary is going to burst open, that reality is going to open up and to reveal God's action in our lives. This is insistent realism. This is being watchful as we devote ourselves to prayer. Not too long ago, uh, I had the privilege of going birding with a mentor of mine. You might be asking, Ben, what's the difference between birding and bird watching? It's the difference basically between varsity and JV. So birders are more dedicated and diligent in their pursuit of birds. Uh, While bird watchers tend to be more casual, some would say lazy. Um, I'm looking out for you here for a minute. Um, It's insulting to a birder to call them a bird watcher. Just so you guys know, so you don't accidentally step on a landmine, that's important detail. You see, this experience, uh, an experienced birder knows the kind of place where extraordinary things are about to burst onto the, the horizon. They know how to place themselves where the right birds are going to show, show up. And so they stay there. They wait. They're poised and still and alert. They're not tense or fussy. That's what the word watchful means in this text. Devoting yourselves to prayer and being watchful in it is like birding. You're diligent and patient because something's about to break into view on the horizon. When we devote ourselves to prayer, we, we may find ourselves uh, spending a long day sitting in the cold and in the rain, uh, hoping that something happens. Many of us experience prayer like that. But when it happens, when you see what you've been waiting for, it is worth it. In two hours at Mead Gardens, we saw 32 birds. Mead Gardens is not that big. But listen, I needed to be discipled by somebody who is more mature than I was in the practice of birding. I did not have eyes to see. So I needed him to come alongside me and point out to me the different things that were happening, the different birds that were around me. I wouldn't have counted 32. Brothers and sisters, this is why we desperately need community. We need people that will come around us, come alongside us and point out to see what we cannot see, how God is at work in our midst. This is why we say, follow me as I follow Jesus in all of life. We have to have a disciple-making culture like this if faith is going to survive in a secular age. And so, 
Another way to say this is to, to hear the gentle rebuke of Sherlock Holmes. Brothers and sisters, you see, but you do not observe. That's our problem. This is a biblical exhortation. Damien said we're about to preach through Exodus, so I've been reading Exodus. And in the scene in Exodus 3, it says this, where Moses sees the burning bush. Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. When you're watchful in prayer, every bush is a burning bush. The world is aflame with the presence of God. Let me give you three practical ways to do this. Three R's. Write, record, recount. Write, record, recount. If we could do reading, writing, arithmetic, I think I could do it here. Write a prayer list. That's the first R. Write it down. I want you... Truly, I, I sincerely mean this. Like, I mean everything I say up here mostly, but, but I really mean this one. I want you, every one of us in this room, to write down a list of three to five not yet disciples of Jesus. I want you to spend the time to write them down. Put it in your notes on Apple. I don't care. But get it down somewhere and pray for them. Be devoted. Continue steadfastly in bringing their names and faces before the throne of God. What would happen? What would happen in our midst if we gave ourselves to that? D.L. Moody, the 19th century evangelist, had a list of 100 friends who didn't know Jesus. He prayed for them his entire life. And when they would come to Christ, he just checked their name off the list. When he died, 96 out of 100 of them had come to know Jesus. That's amazing. But some of y'all in here who got a 4.0 in school are like, it wasn't 100. <laughs> a little disappointing. The other four came to Christ at his funeral. Brothers and sisters, he had continued steadfastly devoting himself to prayer. He was watchful in it with thanksgiving. And he had 100 out of 100 people on this list of uh, names come to know Jesus. And so I'm asking you to write down your prayers. The second thing is to record answered prayer. Record the answers to prayer. Become a chronicler of God's grace. You see, the reason why we have to do this is because God's work is often so subtle that you don't notice yourself walking through doors that you prayed open months ago. We have to write these things down. We have to be like God's spies in Numbers 13 sent out to, to canvas the, the territory. We've got to be like God's spies searching out the terrain for evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives and the lives of the people around us. This is what it looks like to write down answered prayer. One of the most meaningful things my wife's ever said to me happened recently. When people found out she was pregnant, they said, what do you think you're going to have, a boy or a girl? And Alana, with like no hesitation, said, it's going to be a girl. They say, how do you know? She'd say, because that's what Ben's praying for, and he gets what he prays for. <laughs> now, you can understand how meaningful that is. Why would she say that? Because I paid her to. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Why? Why would she say that? She said that because she, we have a practice of writing down our prayers and then recording how God answers them, speaking about how he's actually showing up and rejoicing in that together. This is what faith feeds on. And so 
the, the way that Bishop William Temple said it is, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. When you pray and you're watchful for it, things just happen. So first, I want you to write them down. Second, I want you to record God's answers to your prayers. And third, I want you to recount. Recount these prayer stories. We need to hear them. Historically, we've called them renewal and mission stories here at New City. Rams for short. Sorry, not sorry. And, and these, are, these are stories of how God's at work in you. That's renewal. And how God's at work through you. That's mission. Renewal and mission stories. One of the reasons we changed this to the All of Life podcast is because we want to include more of those stories on it from All of Life. One of the reasons why we're changing some things in our liturgy slowly but surely is we want to create a space in our gathered worship for testimony. For brothers and sisters to get up here and tell stories of how God's at work in them and through them. Because we need this if faith is going to survive a secular age. And so brothers and sisters, write them down. Record God's answers. Recount those stories. Email me. Don't think about, I mean, no story is too small. Email me if God answers a, a prayer in your life. I would love, love, love to hear it. Francis Chan tells a story of when he was on an airplane sitting next to a Muslim man. They begin to have a conversation. And in the course of the conversation, they start talking about religion and faith. And, and Francis Chan just starts talking to this guy about all of the ways in which God shows up to answer his prayer, just like in unbelievable ways. And then Chan looks at the guy and he says, does Allah do that for you? And the Muslim guy said, yeah, he does. So Francis Chan kind of sinks back in his seat, discouraged, like, well, what do I say to that? It wasn't until a little bit later in the flight when the guy leaned over and said, hey, I got to be honest with you. I heard you describing about how your God shows up for you in answering prayer. And I thought I had to defend Allah, but he does not do that for me. This is insistent realism, brothers and sisters. This is how God shows up as a lived reality in our lives. We devote ourselves to prayer. We're watchful in it. But the end, the finale of prayer is with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Prayer culminates in responding to the goodness of God with gratitude. This is where it ends. One of the features of our cultural moment is resentment. Resentment, a sort of Bitter indignation at having not been treated fairly. It's the air we breathe. Every one of us, every day, has opportunities for resentment and gratitude. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will you live a life of resentment or of gratitude? Because they're both options for you right now. The culture is saying indulge your resentment. The Bible is saying divulge your gratitude. Tell people how the Lord has shown up for you. This is about perspective. Thanksgiving, gratitude is so core to the Christian life because we are those who believe that all of life is gift from the hand of a generous and good father. And so it's not un unusual that prayer would end in thankfulness. Let me tell you a story about this. There's this beautiful portrait painted in Luke chapter 2 of an 84-year-old woman named Anna. Anna was only married for seven years when her husband died, and she spent the, the rest of her life as a widow, single, unmarried. Let's be real, she has reasons for resentment. Seven years, her husband's taken out of her life. But instead, Anna 
spends her life worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. I just imagine this joyful old woman, when you go to the temple, you just like, oh, there's Anna. She's going to seek me out and like hug me and have a smile on her face and talk about how she's been praying for me. And it says in the text of scripture that when Jesus is brought up to the temple as an infant, Anna is there. Anna's there. And what is she doing? It says she's giving thanks to God and speaking to everybody who will listen, everybody who's waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And here comes Jesus brought in as a little infant, the redemption of Jerusalem in swaddling clothes. Listen to me. The coming of Christ was the answer of Anna's prayers and many other prayers on top of that. The coming of Christ is not only the fulfillment, the answer of prayer, but the coming of Jesus is the ground for our prayers. If God has broken into history in the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus, if he did it then, he will do it again. This is the ground, the basis of why we seek God in prayer. How do we know God was at work in the person of Jesus? Because as Jesus' hands are outstretched on the cross, he's praying. He's praying. He's praying out with the words, Psalm 22 and his crucifixion, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's praying the words of Psalm 31 with an, a watchful eye to resurrection when he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, this is not the end of the story when I breathe my last. You see, Jesus was sustained. He endured the cross because of his insistent realism. He believed that God was a God of resurrection who would show up with resurrection to answer his very own prayers. And so Paul said, if Jesus isn't resurrected, we are most of all to be pitied. We are the laughingstock of humanity. Doesn't that imply that we live lives of insistent realism? So as I close, brothers and sisters, we are devoted to praying because God is devoted to us till death do us part and we are living forever. We are watchful in praying because, because God himself, our Father, watches over us and counts the very hairs on our head. And we are thankful in it because we cannot give God anything. Everything we have comes as a gift from God, including God's very self. And so all we have left to do is to turn toward him and to utter a simple thank you. Let's pray. Father God, what good news it is that you have inclined your ear towards your people, that you listen to us when we pray to you. What mercy. Let us be those, Holy Spirit, fill us, inspire us to be those who seek your face in prayer. Oh, Jesus, we praise you that your life and death and resurrection is the ground, the basis, the hope that our faith feeds on as we seek you in prayer. It's in your matchless name we pray. Amen.